Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Tonight we are in 1 Samuel chapter 19, so if you have your Bible, you can open to 1 Samuel chapter 19. If you have uh, need of a Bible, just get the attention of one of the ushers. They're making their way right now. They'll drop one off to you so that you can follow along with us as we go through this chapter tonight. And I believe God is going to speak to many of us here tonight in this day and age. The things that are in this chapter are so relevant, so real. Uh, They touch us. Sometimes we don't want to be uh, affected maybe uh, or touched, but I know we need it. So uh, let's just again um, pray. Let's read. I'm going to read verse 1 and then we'll pray and then we'll get into the message and we'll move to the chapter. So uh, 1 Samuel chapter 19 verse 1, it says this. It says that Saul, King Saul, spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. So, Father, we just come to you tonight, Lord, as we uh, get into this uh, cat and mouse game even yet further, and we pray, Lord, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, that you would move upon us in a powerful way, that we would hear your voice from heaven, and that you would give us clarity as it pertains to our own uh, emotions, our mind, uh, our, our, our way, Lord, and that we would know the blessing that you want to place upon a life that fully trusts in you. So would you please fill us with your spirit now and give us the ability to hear what you want to say to us tonight. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you do when your daughter is getting close to someone that you don't really like all that much? What do you do when your husband or your wife is withdrawing and they seem kind of distant and you don't really know what's going on, but you sense that something isn't quite right and it begins to eat away at you? What do you do when the girl of your dreams is starting to get close to someone else and the prospect of winning the prize is slipping away from your grip. And what do you do when time is passing by and the baby doesn't come or the ring is not placed on your finger or the opportunity that you were hoping for doesn't seem to be getting any closer and you're losing more and more time? What do you do when you find yourself in a situation that you really don't like but you really, really can't control it, and you can't stop thinking about it. I mean, you really can't stop thinking about it, and you really, really, really want to stop thinking about it. You ever have something like that in your life? (laughs) We come to a passage of Scripture where we see a man, and he's in a place, and you kind of wonder, how did he get to this place. A little bit of context, a little bit of background. Saul, just in case maybe this is your first time here, your first time around the Bible, Saul that we read about in verse 1, he is the king of Israel. He was chosen by God. He was put into that place. But because of his self-will, his lack of surrender, and his rebellion against God, God has removed his spirit from Saul, and God has begun to move upon the life of this young man, David, who has already been anointed by God to take Saul's place, only David doesn't really know that yet. He's kind of in the middle of the preparation as God stirs things up on his behalf. We saw that David had a very heroic act. In a moment of faith and boldness, he took on a giant, 
one-on-one, and he defeated the giant. The giant fell, and it thrust David forward into a place of notoriety. He became a hero in Israel. It launched him onto the national scene. It landed him a job in the palace, and it got him close to Saul, Jonathan, and the administration. But when David quickly rose to fame and obtained the favor of the people, it tells us that Saul became jealous of David. Chapter 18, verse 9, that when Saul heard the song that the women were singing, that David slew his thousands, or Saul his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. It says in chapter 18, verse 9, it says that Saul eyed David from that moment forward. There was something in Saul where it started, it was a thought that what is going on with this young man? Well, in chapter 18, verse 12, that thought grew into an emotion, and it tells us that Saul was afraid of David, that the thought that he had concerning David's rise to prominence ate away at him to the point where it became a fear in him of losing something. And so it tells us in 18 verse 13 that Saul removed David from his presence. And so that is the thought became an emotion that turned into a behavior. He moved against David because he was afraid of David because David was rising. Now from that time, a lot of things happened. There were two assassination attempts from Saul upon David. He was demoted. He was double-crossed severely. He was sabotaged. And Saul did everything in his power to try to undercut and to cut the legs off of David from moving forward in the thing that God was raising him up in. Now, in the midst of all that, we saw that David was submissive. He was wise. He was diligent. He was faithful to Saul in spite of all this. He was humble and he was thorough, fully completing all that God had given him to do in spite of what he was going through. We see that David, even though Saul was crazy, was growing in wisdom, in influence, in favor, and in character. But throughout all the time that David was growing upwards, Saul was growing in his obsession so that by the time we come to the end of chapter 18, chapter 18, verse 29, it says that David became Saul's enemy continually. So it went from eyeing him to fearing him to moving against him to now he hates him. And it's his enemy absolutely continually so that by the time we come to 19, verse 1, our text tonight, it says that Saul said to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. And you wonder, how did a man who was once affected by the Spirit of God end up in this place? How did he get here? He had something that was no longer his and something that he could not keep, but yet he couldn't let go of it. And in his fear, it became an attempt to control it and it became an obsession. And that's the word, the obsession. Anybody in here ever have an obsession? Something that you can't stop thinking about all the time, over and over and over again. The, the, by the way, the title of tonight's message is OCD. Yeah, you know me. Okay, because it's something that comes to all of us from time to time. All right. Fear became an attempt to control. It became an obsession to the point where he was willing to murder a man to try to control a situation. 
It was the ultimate murder for hire plot. I mean, this is bad what King Saul is into here. Now, every one of us here that's sitting here that has a pulse, I think, I hope, maybe with the exception of maybe one or two, knows what it's like to have something that you want and that you're having trouble obtaining or having something that you have that you fear losing and that you feel like you want to control it. That's an emotion that we understand. We want to control things in our life. We somehow find ourselves in a place, maybe a little later in life, where we feel like we can't sleep right unless the house is clean, the laundry's put away, the coffee is prepared for the morning, we know what we're doing tomorrow, and all of our investments are earning at least 6%. And if all of that is good, then we can lay our head on the pillow at night and we can fall asleep. But if any of that is out of order, then we feel unsettled. We feel like we're not in control. Sometimes we can get the feeling like our self-worth is dependent upon being seen by others in a certain way, that we possess a certain thing or a certain image or that we have certain things or that we're moving in a certain pathway and that until that happens, we're unsettled. It's bothering us. It's eating away at us. Sometimes we can find ourselves in a place where we feel like our life doesn't count and it doesn't matter unless it's following the script that we feel like it's supposed to be following and doing what it's supposed to do. All of us have things that we can't control that we wish that we could. So concerning this whole idea of having an obsessive issue, I want to tell you first of all the lie, then the truth, and then I want to tell you what you can do with it. Here is number one is the lie. The lie is this, that the problem when you're facing something that is an obsession, something that you can't stop thinking about, something that is growing in you and it's destructive on the inside, the lie is that the issue is the problem. That is, that if I can fix this or if I can change this or if I can remove this, whatever this is, from my life, then that would be the solution to the problem. And that's the lie. That isn't actually the solution, okay? Because if that was the solution, uh, the, the problem, then the solution would be just change it, fix the situation. Do something to manipulate or produce or remove whatever you have to do, okay, to change the situation. That solves the problem. But that doesn't actually work. That only feeds the obsession. It only makes it worse. Now, here's the truth. The problem is not what I'm obsessing over. The problem is the fact that I'm obsessing over. The problem is the obsession itself, okay? Obsessive behavior is an attempt to control what's not yours to control. So in Christian language, which is what we're speaking because we're in church, we would call that a lack of trust or a lack of surrender. We're not trusting God with things that are outside of our control, and we're not surrendered to God for the outcomes of things that are outside of our control. Okay, And so when we're obsessing about something, we aren't actually controlling anything. The reality is, is that that something is controlling us. We are being controlled by the thing that we cannot control. I was looking at the word control when I was studying this, and I just kept staring at it. I love words because they, they, they say so much. You know, you just think about it, and just the word controlling, just break it apart. It's Kant, which is, you know, continue and rolling. It's continually rolling. 
It's continually ruling. Every time you try to control something and you can't, it is continually rolling over you. I was staring at it some more, and I saw it another way. I saw con and trolling. Okay, con means to lie, and trolling means to just be hounding you all the time. So there's this lie hounding you all the time. You're trying to control something that you can't control, and it's eating away at you. You can't control the situation, and now you can't even control the fact that you're thinking about it. All right, so the lie is that the problem is, is, is the issue I'm obsessing over. The truth is that the real problem is the fact that you're obsessing about it. And ultimately, an obsession or an obsessive behavior or an obsessive personality will take you places that you never thought you were capable of going. It was an obsession that brought Satan himself from being the most beautiful of all the creation of God in charge of all the worship in heaven to becoming the devil. He had a thought, what's it like to be God? That thought became a desire that he couldn't control. It became an obsession to the fact that all he did was spend his time scheming of ways that he could find his way into that position, and it brought him to the place where the most amazing of the creations of God became the most evil of the creation of God. Eve, who was made perfect in the Garden of Eden and who was set in paradise, became obsessed with something that wasn't hers, a thought was sown into her mind that if you eat of this, it will be an experience like you've never had. And that thought became an emotion. It became an obsession. And it brought her places that she never wanted to go. Lot became obsessed with a location. It was just something that he saw. It was just something that was suggested to him. And it came in through the eye gate. But it became an obsession, and when he had the opportunity, he took it, and it brought him places that he never thought he could be. He went from being wealthy and having a bright future to being impoverished and living in a cave as a widower with his two daughters, destitute because of an obsession. Samson had an obsession with women, and it brought him to nothing. Jezebel had an obsession with power and she was eaten of dogs. Ahab had an obsession with a vineyard, a garden that wasn't his. Who cares? You're the king. It's a garden. But it became an obsession and it brought him to the place where he would kill an innocent man to have a garden when he could have had the whole entire country. Obsession can be very costly. The New Testament book of James chapter 4 verse 1, he says it this way. He says, from whence come wars and fightings among you, come they not hence even from your lusts, that war in your members, that is in your body inside of you, you lust, yet you don't have, you kill and desire to have, and you cannot obtain, you fight and war, yet you have not, because you ask not. He says that when you allow an obsession to control you, something that you can't control, it is going to bring you places where you will do things that you never thought that you were capable of. So how do you handle it when you find yourself obsessed with something? And I want to give you two answers to that question. Number one is this, is that if you are not a Christian, you're here tonight, somebody invited you, or you're just on the outside kind of looking in and, and interested in things of God, but you don't know Jesus Christ personally, okay, then I'm going to tell you how you can handle an obsession. Go to a counselor, read books, try to adjust your thinking, do whatever you can 
but I'm sorry, because eventually you are going to lose the battle to your obsession. It is going to come back. It is going to beat you. Ultimately, uh, you can do all you can do, and I'm sure that you will, uh, and good luck. Let me know how that works out for you. Okay, now, part B. If you are a Christian and you know Jesus uh, personally, then he tells us, the Bible tells us how we are to handle it when there is an obsessive issue in our lives, okay? The answer is in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. All right, I'm going to read it to you and explain it to you because this is how you handle it when you have a thought that you can't put down or an issue or something that is gnawing at you, eating away at you, and you can't stop. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says, inspired by the Spirit of God. He says, be careful for nothing. Now, that word careful in the Bible is translated three different ways. Anxious, distracted, and worried. And of course, careful, which is full of care. Means that there's something that is continually rolling over in your mind. All right? It is a worry. It's an anxiety. It's an obsession. There's something that you can't put down. It is holding you stronger than you are holding it. And here's the command. He says, be careful or anxious or distracted or obsessed with nothing. All right, that's the command. That's the answer. That's it. Just stop. <laughs> no, no, it's not quite, quite that simple. All right, that's the command not to. He says, don't do it. But then he tells us what to do instead. All right, here's how we're to handle it. He says, be anxious or careful for nothing, but in everything. That means it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's something that you're ashamed of. It doesn't matter if it's something that doesn't make sense. It doesn't matter if you're the king of Israel and you're trying to hold on to that position because there's a young man who has some promise and he's coming up the ranks. It doesn't matter what it is. But in everything, he says this, first of all, by prayer. Prayer means to engage with God. It means that I'm bringing God into the thought process. I'm bringing him into the situation and the circumstance. I'm bringing him into the thing. Here's what I've found. I've found that you cannot be engaged with God and be engaged, or, or what is it? You cannot be, I'm sorry, you can't be God and engage with God at the same time. That's what it is. You can't be God and engage with God at the same time. And when you're trying to control something that you can't control, you are taking the place of God in a situation. But when you engage with God, you are inviting the one power that can actually do something about a situation into the situation. And so he's saying that if you don't want to be controlled by something that's holding you, bring God into the situation. That's number one, by prayer. Number two is he said, and supplication. The word supplication means to present your case, meaning that once you've brought God into the equation, into the circumstance, now explain your side of things. Give God the whole story, the whole picture, the good, the bad, and the ugly, where you're wrong, where you're right, why you can't let go of this thing, why it's bothering you, why it's important to you, all this. Just lay out your case like a lawyer would in court, plead your cause like a child who wants something really, really bad. And God invites us to do that. He says, which of you, being a father or a mother, when your children come to you and ask you for bread, would give them a stone? He says, you understand what it's like to be a parent. And God says, come to me the same way. That's what it means to supplicate. So I'm bringing God in. Now I'm laying the cause before him. And then the third thing, it says, with thanksgiving. 
All right? Now, that's a mindset. Thanksgiving is I'm acknowledging that, God, you are sovereign, that you're good, and so I'm thanking you for every circumstance in my life, knowing that you're working all these things together for my good. And that's a perspective changer. That's a game changer. Because when you're obsessing about something that you can't control, it's almost impossible to be thankful. But once you force yourself to look at what you're thankful for, then it gives you the right perspective in seeing things as they really are. And so thanksgiving is an important part of this whole equation. Okay, so I'm engaging God. I'm presenting my cause. I'm giving thanks for what's right in my life and for his promises in my life, his presence in my life. And that's where I'm to leave my obsessions, okay? I'm to let my requests be made known to God. Now, here's the promise on the other side of it, is that as soon as you do these things, God's going to take away your obsessive thoughts. He's going to just fulfill all of your desires and fix the situation, and everything is going to be perfect. Let's go back to Samuel. I'm just joking. No, that's not what it says. It doesn't say that God is just going to, like, do the genie thing and change everything around. Here's what he says that he will do. Verse 7, Philippians 4, 7. It says, the peace of God. Peace means tranquility. Peace means that what was spinning around, rolling around, keeping me up at night, making me anxious, making me jittery, making me... Peace means still. Peace is there's a storm and the boat is being tossed and you're trying to get the water out faster than the water is coming in and everybody else is, is going crazy and it's frantic and then that all stops. And there's no water in the boat and there's a calm in a quiet, in a stillness, peace. It says that the peace of God, watch this, which passes all understanding. Meaning that if you were to try to figure out why there's peace, you won't be able to figure it out because it's past your understanding. It's beyond your comprehension. It passes understanding, will keep or guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Here's the promise of God is that when you handle an obsessive, controlling thought thing that's going on inside of you, when you handle it the way God says, bring him in, present your cause, give thanks. He will fulfill his side, which is to calm you down and give you a peace about the situation that you're in, even if you haven't seen the solution or the outcome to it yet. Here's what it means. It means that when you engage God this way, he might not change the situation, but he will change you. And that's the more important part. And he gives you then the patience and the peace to wait on him while he works through the situation because sometimes situations have to change. And so this is what he tells you to do, okay? So it's surrender plus trust plus patience until you change. And here's why that's important. is because change has to happen on a level that I can't touch and neither can any counselor or book or advice that I can get from a person. Only God can make the adjustment at the level the adjustment needs to be made. And therefore, I have two choices. I can either do what God says with an obsessive controlling thought life or situation, or I can let that obsessive controlling situation rob me of everything that is precious and dear to me in my life. Those are my choices and that's it. You will either let go of the thing you're obsessing about or you will let go of everything else. And that's exactly what's going to happen to Saul. He, Saul, will die. David will live. 
Saul will not be able to control the situation that, that he's in. I've learned an important principle in life, and it's this, is that if you are not happy right now, then you will not be happy when the situations or circumstances change to be the way you want them to be. And that's hard to swallow, but it is absolutely true. If you cannot find contentment where you are today, you will not be content, even if the thing that is making you uncontent or that you think is making you uncontent changes. It has to happen that way. You know what's funny is, is I have given this advice that I just gave to you in countless counseling sessions, and I can tell you this, personal experience, seeing it with my own eyes, is that when I tell people what God says about how to deal with these things, almost always I see shoulders drop. Almost every single time I, I say this and people go, guess I'm leaving here without help. That's, that's what, they, they don't say it with their mouth, but they say it with their body loud. You know, it's like, I guess it's not gonna work. You know, this whole thing, you know, and I see that all the time. And here, here is what they're saying. And, and here's what you're probably or maybe asking right now is, isn't there another way? I mean, is there any other way to handle it other than what you just said right there? Because it sounds so simple, but it also sounds so difficult, you know, because I want to control it. There's part of me that wants, I just want what I want. I don't want peace. I want the situation fixed, you know. Is there any other way? The answer is no. I want you to read on with me in 1 Samuel, and I want you to see something here. It doesn't relate to Saul. It actually relates to David, but it illustrates the point. Watch this. As we move on uh, in this uh, murder-for-hire plot of Saul wanting to kill David. Watch verse 2. It says, But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take heed to yourself until the morning and abide in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will commune with my father of thee and what I see that I will tell you. Okay, so the first Ed Snowden that ever existed was the son of the king, Jonathan. And he is going to design and devise this espionage plot right now where he is going to hack into Saul's emails and show them to David. Essentially, that's what's happening. He's saying, you go hide. I will casually stroll just beyond the place where you're hiding and I'll get into a conversation and you can hear the back and forth between me and my dad and then you'll know exactly what you're up against in all of this thing. And so... It says in verse 4 that Jonathan spoke good of David unto Saul, his father, and said unto him, let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you and because his works have been towards thee very good. For he did put his life in his hand and slew the Philistines, speaking of Goliath, and the Lord wrought a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and you did rejoice Wherefore then, or why then, will you sin against innocent blood to slay David without a cause? So he just reminds Saul of all that David has done and that there's nothing in him worthy of death. It's irrational what Saul is wanting to do. And so he's trying to reason with Saul, an insane man who's obsessed, and he's trying to, by readjusting his thinking, he's trying to get him to take a different course. Now, here's the temporary good news, is that it works temporarily. 
Watch this. Verse 6. It says, And Saul hearkened unto the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swear, As the Lord lives, he shall not be slain. As long as God is alive, David will be alive. I will not lift my hand against David. I have had a change of mind, a change of heart. I'm a reformed man. Thank you for talking sense into me, Jonathan. I appreciate this little pep talk. And it says that Jonathan called David. I wonder if he did it right then. Hey, Dave, come here. David pops out from behind the rock. He's like, man, this is great. You know, I doubt it. But Jonathan called David and Jonathan showed him all those things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as in times past. And so here they're thinking, okay, well, all's well that ends well. Saul has had the sense talked into him by his son. David is back in the palace. Everything is as it should be. He's got his first job back. David's happy. Saul's happy. Let's move on to 2 Samuel. Okay, this is great. It doesn't really work that way. <laughs> All right, not, not really. And here's why, okay? Because Jonathan's plot, although it was well-intended, it interfered with something that God was doing. Not only that, but Jonathan manipulated a situation using secrecy, conspiracy, espionage, and really betrayal of his father. And God in his wisdom, his fatherly wisdom, who is preparing David, is not going to let David get away with manipulating his way out of a situation that God himself put David in for his purposes and for his mind. David is going to be a good king, and so therefore God is not going to let David think that this is the way that you handle situations. I want to share with you a law that I have learned. This is not in the Bible the way I'm going to say it, but it absolutely is in the Bible uh, in its concept and in its precept, and, and it is this. And listen to it and never forget it, okay? It's this, is that if God has put you in a fix, okay, and you try to fix it, then God is going to put you in another fix to fix the fix that you fixed in your attempt to fix the fix that God put you in to fix you. Okay? You cannot manipulate your way out of something that God is trying to produce in your life. I have told you this. You guys know this. Is that the only way And the fastest way to get through something that is unpleasant is to embrace the thing that you hate. Embrace the thing that God is allowing you to go through right now. Feel it in its fullness. Experience it in its entirety because God has allowed it to happen for something that he's trying to fix inside of you. God stirred up Saul against David because God's doing something in David. David and Jonathan manipulated their way back into comfort. And so now God has to reinstitute the discomfort on a higher level because God's not done doing what God is going to do. So watch what happens in the next verse. Verse 8. It says, And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and slew them with a great slaughter, and they fled from him. And the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul as he sat in his house with his javelin in his hand, and David played with his hand. And Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with the javelin, 
But he slipped away out of Saul's presence and he smote the javelin into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. And so he ends up in this cycle where history repeats itself and he starts over from where he was in the beginning. And anytime you try to go around God, you are just going back to the beginning and he's going to do it again because he is going to win. Not because he's angry with you, not because he's mean-spirited, not because he is sadistically against you in some way. It's because he loves you and he knows what he's doing and he's bringing forth something in your life. So just give yourself into it absolutely and completely. Surrender it to it. 100% every single time. Now, watch what happens as an outcome of this. Verse 11, it says that Saul also sent messengers unto David's house to watch him and to slay him in the morning. And Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, if you save not your life tonight, tomorrow you shall be slain. And so they know what's going on. The ring doorbell system picks up the rustling in the bushes. They see that there are spies. There's people outside. The security system is working fully. And so Michael let David down through a window, and he went and he fled and escaped. And Michael took an image and she laid it in the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair for his bolster and covered it with a cloth. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. And Saul sent the messengers again to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may slay him. I don't care if he's sick. Bring the whole bed with you. He's dying. And when the messengers were come in, behold, there was an image in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair for his bolster. And Saul said unto Michal, Why have you deceived me so and sent away my enemy that he has escaped? And my call answered Saul, he said unto me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Now, again, I don't know if she was just protecting herself. She saw the look in Saul's eye and and he had the javelin, you know, clenched fists and white knuckled. And she's like, I got to get out of this somehow. Or if she was just half crazy herself, because later on we're going to find out that she is. You know, so I don't really know uh, what, what drove her to this lie. But here's, here's the point, and here's the bottom line, is that David got away. He was let down in a basket. And it's funny, that happens a few times in the Bible where people get let down in a basket in moments then they want to be brought up. And sometimes before you can be brought up, you have to be let down a few times, you know, and David is let down the, the, the wall in a basket out the window. But here's what's amazing about it is that David didn't die. See, the thing that David would have feared, the thing that David needed to fear is that he wouldn't live to see the morning. That part was real, but God got him out of the situation. And here's the point. Here's what I want you to just think about right now. Because you might be in a situation where you are let down because of the things that are going on around you or what has happened or what's led you to here. But I want you to think what hasn't happened because you've been let down. See, if David wasn't let down, he would be dead. But because he was let down, he's alive. And sometimes we can be in a situation where we're not happy with some of the things that are going on, but are you sick? Are you broke? Are you in eviction court right now? Like, what, what's really, really valuable to you at this moment? And has the fear that you feared actually come upon you? 
David is still alive. So David fled and he escaped and he came to Samuel to Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and dwelt at Naioth. And it was told Saul saying, behold, David is at Naioth in Ramah. And Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as appointed over them, the Spirit of God was upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. So here's this Holy Ghost meeting that's going on that Samuel is overseeing. And every time he sends soldiers to arrest David, the Spirit of God comes upon the soldiers. They get caught up in the spirit of worship and and of the Lord's presence in the place. And all of a sudden, someone gets back and says, I don't know what's going on, but every time you send soldiers, they just get filled with the Holy Ghost and no one's arresting David. And so then verse 22, it says that he also went to Ramah and came to a great well that is in Seku. And he asked and he said, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they be at Nioth in Ramah. So Saul says, that's it. I'm going myself. I will arrest the man. I will kill him in front of Samuel if I have to. And he went thither to Nioth in Ramah. And the spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah. Now, that's amazing. Here's this guy going, I'm going to kill him. 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 I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. God is great. God is good. His glory fills the earth, you know. And, and all of a sudden, this man who stood filled with this vitriol and hatred for this man on a mission to literally kill him is overcome by the presence and the power of God. And he begins to prophesy until he comes to Nioth. And then it says that he stripped off his clothes also, probably just the royal robes, the things that set him apart, and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and laid down naked all that day and all night. Wherefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? There's a lot here, isn't there? I mean, if that doesn't give you more questions than answers, then you're not listening or you're not normal. You know, like what in the world is going on here? First of all, here the main and, and obvious thing, and that is this, is that if God has appointed that your life be spared, then your life will be spared, even if God has to send the Holy Ghost upon an ungodly government and stop them from finding you where you are. Okay, God is going to preserve you. You are invincible until he's done with you and he will save you whether by Michael letting you down in a basket or whether he comes upon and influences those that are your enemies. But God is going to preserve the promise that he has placed over your life. And that's important that you understand. Okay, but there's a couple of other things in this that make me raise an eyebrow and make me think and make me stop and to make me consider. Actually, they're scary thoughts. One is this, is that it can be possible, it can be possible that your latest Holy Ghost filling is intended to protect people around you from you. Think think about that for just a minute, okay? Because here's Saul going like, I haven't felt the Spirit of God like this for years. Thank you, Lord, for reviving me. Thank you for stirring up your favor in my life. And the whole time, the whole reason that God is coming upon Saul is just simply to protect David. That's scary to me to think. Like, God, God, you mean that you fill people with your Spirit just to protect others from what I might do to them? 
That's scary to me. Let me ask you a question. Is there anyone in your life that when you walk into a room and they're in it, you lead with a mood monitor? In in other words, you go in and you're like, I need to really find out what kind of mood this person is in right now before I say anything or engage them in any way. I need to read them before I can reflect who I am or who I'm supposed to be today in the presence of this person. Anybody else or is that just me, (laughs) you know, in my world? You know, but I think that's common, right? You know, let me ask you this. Second question. Are you maybe that person? Are you, are you maybe at times in, for someone else, that person that when they come in the room, they need to read where you're at first? Okay, how's the mood? All right. They're prayed up. They're filled. They went to church last night. Okay, good. We can talk. We can engage. You know, that's there. You know, be careful because sometimes your filling might be to protect someone else from you. We see that in this text. Another thing that scares me about this is that it is possible for people that are far from God to still be influenced and used by him. It's possible for people that are far from God to still be influenced and used by him. And we see that right here in Saul's, that this man is more of internally a reflection of Satan himself than he is of any other thing. And yet he can still be affected by the Spirit of God so that the appearance is that is he among the prophets? Is this man actually filled with God? And that presents to us both a warning and a warning, all right? The first warning is this, be careful who you trust. Psalms chapter 118, verses 8 and 9. David wrote this because he knew it well. He said, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Again, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. In other words, don't put any man between you and God. In other words, I'm looking at this man or trusting in this man or this woman or this person or this author or this radio personality. I'm trusting them that they are to me a right representation of who God is. Be careful of that. Because someone who is very far from God can still be influenced by him in a way that it touches your life for the good. And if your eyes are on them as a reflection of who he is, then if you see that what they are is not what they're presenting themselves to be, then what's that going to do to your faith? Keep your eyes upon Jesus. That's the warning. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in men because you can't see what's really going on inside men. So it's a warning. But it's also a warning. Because what that means is it means that I can be far from God and I can still be influenced by God or even be used by God. It says in the book of Romans in the New Testament that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Meaning that when God chooses to use your life or grace your life with a gift or a grace, something that he's going to use for someone else, he doesn't take it away just because you're distant from God in the season that you're in. Or if your behavior maybe steps into the arena of disqualification, God may not take away that grace or that gift or that ability or the influence that he's given you with other people. And you might think that, well, because God is still using my life and I'm still helpful in someone's life, then that must mean I'm okay with God. You can be far from God and yet still be influenced by God for the sake of someone else. 
How many times have we seen it and heard it that we see someone who was so influential in the kingdom of God and then we find out that they were leading a double life for years? Be careful. Be careful that it could be you. It's a scary thing. The third thing that this tells me here is that it's also, and this is more by implication than it is in the text, but that means this, is that it's possible for people who are near to God to be influenced by the devil. Okay, if people that are far from God can be influenced by God, people that are near to God can still be influenced by the devil. We are spiritual beings and we are influenced by the spirits that are around us. And that's why the Apostle Paul would say in the New Testament book of Ephesians, he would say, take unto you the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The helmet, because thoughts can be put in. The breastplate and the shield, because the heart can be affected by evil things. The arrows and the fiery darts of the wicked one. Those of us who desire to be close to God and that are close to God can still be influenced by Satan. And so we must be on guard against spiritual influences. Paul would say to the Corinthian church, one of the gifts, one of the graces that God gives is a discerning of spirits. Is that God gives us the ability to discern where an influence is coming from. Because sometimes we can be influenced by something that we think is from God, but really Satan is making it 95% like God, but 5% of it is wretched. And so we need discernment from God. The point in all this is that we need to be close to God in truth and in reality, and not just in appearance. It's going to happen to David later on. He will be close to God, yet influenced by Satan. We'll see it in the life of David. In closing, I want to say this, is that I have lived in this body, this human shell frame of a man, for long enough to have seen all of these things that we're talking about tonight in me. I know what obsessive thinking is like. I am the king of overthinking, okay? I know what it's like to obsess and I know what it's like to handle it the wrong way and what happens. And I know what it's like to handle it the right way, the way God says and what happens. And here's what I can tell you is that God's way works. And if you have something in your life, even tonight, even right now that you are obsessing about, that it is controlling you, rolling over you all the time and you can't stop thinking about it, the one way that there is for you to be set free from that is to choose to lay it aside, to engage and bring God into it, to lay out your case before him concerning the thing that's going on and to give thanks even for that thing and for everything else that he's doing in your life. That is the one way that God has given. And I can tell you that it works. It works. I could, I could tell you stories right now, but I just don't feel like self-depreciating and, and giving you the dirt of, uh, of my own life. But I could tell you that it absolutely works. It is hard because sometimes it means I have to embrace some unpleasant circumstances for a season. I can also tell you that the freedom that comes from surrendering to God is real. It's a real freedom. Because here's the problem, is that when your mind gets so stretched out by all of the things that you're obsessing about, you end up with very little space to do any actual work. You get spread very thin and you're so distracted by the things that are going on inside of you that you become ineffective in the areas that you need to be effective. And when you handle it the way that God tells you to handle it, he brings a freedom that allows you to be effective and not be affected by the things that were troubling you. I have also seen, being in this church now for over 10 years, 
I've been here long enough to see that there are many people that have sat in these seats, that have come into this place for years, and then come to find out later that they were never really a part of God's kingdom at all. They sang the songs. They liked the way they felt sitting in the seats. They liked the way they were treated by the people that were in this place. They saw the positivity of the spirit, the Holy Spirit that is here, but they never gave themselves fully to God. And it was only a matter of time before they weren't able to control the human sinful nature that was inside of them. And what was inside came outside and it was ultimately revealed and they are no longer here, no longer a part of it. They were distant from God. They didn't trust God. And I want to ask you here tonight to honestly consider and in your own mind, am I close to God right now? Or am I distant from God right now? God says this. He said it to Abraham. When God first met Abraham, he said this. He said, in blessing, I will bless you. That's what God said. He called him. Abraham heard his voice. He knew it was God. And God said, in blessing, I will bless you. That was the promise that God gave to him. I'm bless your life. At the end of Abraham's life, just before he died, it says this of Abraham. It says that Abraham was old and well stricken in years and God had blessed him in all things. So God said at the beginning, I will bless you. And at the end, it says God had blessed him in all things. All right. But nowhere along the way did God enumerate and give progress reports and explain what he was doing and why Abraham was going through all this and why did he have to wait and when was it going to come and how is it going to happen and where am I going to live and where's the money going to come from? None of that was ever explained. God said, I'm going to bless you. And then he did what he said he was going to do. And in the interim, it says this about Abraham. It says that he believed in the Lord and that was counted to him for righteousness. In other words, Abraham's part was to trust God. He didn't know how it was going to work out because God doesn't give that to us. God gives us a promise. That's ours. He has control. That's his. And when we try to control what God has promised, we take something from God that belongs to him. He's God. We're not. He calls us to believe. Now, here's the good news. Galatians chapter 3 verse 14 says this. It says that the blessing of Abraham comes upon the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit by faith. Okay, so the same word that God spoke to Abraham, that I am going to bless you, God gives that promise to you and I. He says he's going to bless us. What he asks of us is faith. He says, will you trust me? Will you put your full hope in me? Will you believe in me and believe on me and allow me to do what I'm doing in your life so that you can come to the end of it all and the testimony can be, now God has blessed you in all things or had blessed you in all things because that's what he does. He's faithful. It's not ours to control. But here's the question. Are you really in him? Do you really believe in him? Do you know that Jesus obsessed you wouldn't think so because, you know, you see Jesus and he seemed always so calm, but Jesus actually did obsess. He obsessed one time. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
He told his disciples the night before he would suffer, he said that my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. There was something that was controlling. It was rolling, rolling over in him. He knew what was about to happen. And when he came into the garden of Gethsemane, he said three times, he, he, he handled it the right way. He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Even to the point where blood started to squeeze through the capillaries and the pores of his face and his forehead because of the agony that he was in over what was about to happen. But Jesus was obsessing about the suffering that he was going to take so that you and I could be set free from our obsessions and be recipients of his promise. He was absorbing in that moment all of the obsessions that control us. He was taking even that in that moment. Bringing us to the place where we could place our trust in him and that he would be faithful to carry us through the things that we go through in our lives and provide peace in the midst of all of the confusion. That's what Jesus was obsessing about in the garden. And now the invitation to you, person, is will you receive what Jesus did on your behalf on the cross that you might be included in what he already purchased for you? Are you on the outside looking in or are you truly on the inside? That's a good question. Father, we just thank you tonight as we consider these things and we look at these characters that speak to us so specifically and and they give us such clarity and they help us to see our own situations and even to analyze and realize the things that we're feeling and thinking. And so tonight, Lord, as we sit here in this place, we want to ask you, Father, that you would truly be our God. We want to ask you, Lord, that you would stir up faith in us and that you'd help us to see Jesus and see your promise and to see your faithfulness and to see your ability and to truly yield, to truly surrender, to truly believe. And so tonight, Father, we're asking that you would come into our hearts. We're asking that you would forgive us of our sins. We're asking that you would receive us to yourself. We're asking that you, Jesus, would be the Lord of our lives in every way. That our trust and our reliance would be completely upon you. And that the peace that passes understanding would guard and keep our minds. And that truly the blessing of Abraham would come upon us through faith in Jesus Christ. So Father, would you hear us tonight as we've given our attention to you? Would you take, Lord, the things that even maybe tonight are spinning around inside our head that we can't figure out what to do with? And would you help us, Lord, to lay them at the foot of the cross? And in their place, God, would you give us the peace that passes understanding? That in the midst of all this chaos, that we would know your tranquility. So be it so, Lord, even as you've said, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time. May you continue to love, learn, 
and live the way of Jesus.